That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. And we're back in live. I'm Jimmy Krupka. This is Ski Racing This Week. All right. Well, we are back and live. Speaking of live, actually, if you didn't catch my live shows the past two Sundays on Ski Racing's Facebook page, I suggest you check it out. They're fantastic. Um, You don't need a Facebook account to go on because it's a public page. So just search Ski Racing Facebook and you'll find them. Click under videos. The first one, um, two Sundays ago, was U.S. not nationals because U.S. nationals didn't happen. I ran a little race. You'll have to see how I did it from home quarantine and Zoom, but we did it. It was uh, the rising speed star, Alice Merriweather, the World Cup winner at Beaver Creek, Tommy Ford, and the absolute fireball down the downhill course, Breezy Johnson. So check that out. I won't tell you who won, who was the U.S. not national champion, but it was an exciting race filled with some epic crashes. Last Sunday, I did NASTAR not national. So NASTAR nationals was supposed to happen last week, and we did it online again. It was great. We had Bill Madsen, the director of NASTAR. We had Andrew Weibrecht. If you don't know him, he's a two-time Olympic medalist and World Cup winner Marco Sullivan. So Another race that came down to the wire. We also showed some clips on both of those live shows of everyone skiing and had a good time with some live questions. So check those out. I'm having some fun being on the camera and live, but I'm now back in the booth with my microphone going crazy in home quarantine, but we are fattening the curve, Um, flattening the curve, sorry. And this podcast feels a little weird right now. So shoot me an email at skiracingthisweek at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at jimmy underscore who underscore to let me know what you like listening to during these times where there's no ski racing um, or if you have any particular guest requests because there are a lot of people out there that would be fun to have on the show. But I need your help. I've lost contact with Christopher Henriksen. We had a falling out. Uh, Our weatherman has not been heard from in ages. Weather seems to be not as much of a priority these days, but I do have a couple of real guests lining up, seriously, um, in the next couple of weeks that are going to be really good. Anyway, I want to extend, as always, positive vibes to you all. I know you're all facing hard times, and some of you really hard times, and I know you may be stressed out, but right now, for this hour, you can just immerse yourself in the world of ski racing, which happens to be my favorite world on earth. We've got a great show for you today. EDT's Morgan, the former Olympian speed skier and the unofficial official voice of reason in the ski racing world, sits down for a fantastic, all-encompassing talk about college ski racing and a member of the U.S. para-alpine ski team, Connor Hogan, tells me his story. All that and more coming up, but without further ado, EDT's Morgan. 
Okay, we now welcome on the show Edie Tees Morgan. She raced World Cup. Um, she wrote a book about it. Um, she runs a blog called Racer X, um, uh, a uh, regular contributor to ski racing media, um, and also a ski racing parent. So um, I'm really excited to talk to Edie. Um, Edie, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so psyched. I've been listening to your podcast. Um, love your guests, particularly when you had Cindy Burlack and talked about that day she foran because <laughs> yeah. I was up there watching. That was crazy. Um, and also just wanted to say quick, I, I think it's really cool. Ski racing is continuing this tradition of bringing ski racers up. Like, you know, Sierra Ryder is writing for SkiRacing.com and you're doing the podcast. Um, that's how I got my start. That's how Perino got his start. Um, mm-hmm. Just a ton of racers did and and that's very much in the tradition of gary black and i love that it's continuing so yeah thumbs up thanks i'm i absolutely love doing this so um i i'm having a blast and i i actually you know want to thank ski racing as well because they just took a chance on me um and it's been really fun um so before um you know obviously you know you're here to talk all things college racing which is a huge story that we are going to dig through but First, I want to talk about you and your history. Um, so you raced uh, World Cup, right? You raced speed? Yes, I was mostly speed. So I grew up in the West, um, speed r- racer. So I was on the uh, I was on the ski team 84 to 93. Um, mm-hmm. So raced on the World Cup like 80, uh, I don't know, six or seven years, something like that. But in, mm-hmm. in speed. And then when I was done, I quit when I was um, 27. So I was too old for NCAA racing, mm-hmm. but I raced for Sierra Nevada college, which was then NCSA. Now that would be USCSA. Um, and it was, it was so fun. I mean, I've always been a big fan of college racing mm-hmm. because of that. Cause it was just so much fun. It was like the perfect step down program from, um, from world cup racing. Yeah. So who, who were the, who were the big names that were on the team with you? Um, when you were racing? So, it would, the biggest would have been Tamara McKinney. She's okay. four years older than me, so but she also grew up in squaw, so she was you know my idol growing up in squaw, and then I was able to be on the U.S. ski team when she was, and that was great. Um, Diane Roth, Eva Tordokens, um, Julie Parisian there at the end. Peekaboo was just coming on um, when I was leaving. Mm-hmm. I barely overlapped with Cindy Nelson, um, that sort of era, that 84 era of Kristen Cooper, Cindy Nelson, Abby Fisher. They were gotcha. on their way out. Gotcha. And then you you also wrote a book about it, didn't you? I did. I did Shut Up and Ski. Shut um, Up and Ski. Something subtitles about like chasing the Olympic dream. Um, and I kind of wrote it because we were, our 88 team has the distinction of being, I think, the only Olympic team in ski team in I don't know what the years are now 50 some years mm-hmm. that didn't win a medal more than 50 years oh, really? so um we weren't gonna live on unless somebody like me wrote about it so how did what was the process like of going from hurtling yourself down a hill to sitting and just writing a book uh well I had the I, I had some time in between there and I had a kid at the time so okay. I was I mean it was a real come to Jesus <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I had come many steps down. Uh, but the retirement, it was wow. interesting. I was just reading Sierra Ryder's thing about retirement, like from ski racing. Mm-hmm. That part that part was tough. That's no joke. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it is. I, I, as I'm, you know, a lot of my peers around me. So if I was, if I'd gone straight to college after high school, I would be graduating this year. Um, this would be it for me. And um, so I'm watching a lot of my peers uh, grad, uh, you know, retiring from ski racing. And it definitely, 
I, I don't want to be there yet, but th- thankfully, hey, well, I have years ahead of me. That is, that's part of this conversation, too, because yeah. we get parents, I get parents a lot with kids who are sort of getting into this and asking for advice. Both my kids repeated a year in school for other reasons. It just seemed like the right thing to do. But then as a ski racer, you get to the end of high school and the, the college decision and PGing, it's like, wow, glad yeah. we took that year. I mean, there's no rush because it takes... I mean, the, the main reason this the college racing is so important is because it just takes so long to develop. Yeah. Um, and so you've got these kids looking at, you know, retiring, and I put that in big air quotes, at age 22, you haven't come close to reaching your potential. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's and that's, and so let's dive right into that, because, um, you know, the decision whether or not to go to college right after high school is really tough for a lot of racers. Um you know, there's so many different things involved. Um, what what the best program is going to be for for their development, how expensive it's going to be, um, what college they want to end up going to, um, all of this stuff, and and it made it more difficult a few years ago. I think it was twenty, I want to say 2014. FIS bumped up the age um, that you start um, racing FIS races. So. Instead of most kids, instead of having either four, if they were young for their grade, or three years in high school to race fist races and lower their points, now they have either three or two. And so I was one of those people who had two, and which meant, um, and you get recruited after your junior year. So I was trying to make my case to colleges for being recruited, but I had only had one year to lower my points, and everyone knows that's a really tough year. Right. And I remember at that around that time, or it was maybe a little after that, I really started getting into this. And I remember talking to Pete Dodge from Dartmouth about that. Yeah. And he said, I, I can't look at a kid, you know, 15, 16, I mean, honestly, even 17, and you, you don't know what they're going to be. So yeah. that um, only having two years of fists under your belt um, and then having to, to, to perform for, you know, in the eyes of college coaches, you know, it's, it's hard to pick talent anyway, but especially in that situation, you have no idea. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, the longer, I mean, the, the, the end, my end results and goal through any of this discussion is that we can just keep kids racing longer yeah. because until we do, we're just not going to know what talent we've got out there. Yeah. And, and to your point about, uh, the fact that it, it you're not even close to done developing at 22 is if you look at the 10,000 hour rule and you think about the fact that, um, you know, it's 10,000 hours of purposeful practice. That's 10,000 hours of going down the course on any given (laughs) skiing day, you know, any given training day, if I do eight runs that are a minute long, then that's eight minutes of training. And so if you throw that, um, multiply that over the course of a year, you probably only get, you know, several hours of of training a year so at the end of the day um yeah you know it's in, yeah. it's, in, it's it's a really interesting concept and it's true i mean how could you ever get those ten thousand hours in skiing this takes me back to a conversation they had with debbie armstrong um a, a while back when i was doing an article on her and she won a gold medal in 84 and she took she was talking about what is deliberate practice what is preparing you for being a ski racer mm-hmm. she took a year off i think in eighth grade um eighth or ninth grade i mean that's right where they're saying you need all this time and her family moved to malaysia she didn't ski at all for over a year um but she's like i learned how to eat bugs i learned how to go on a bus alone for 24 hours with a bunch of 
people I just met on this basketball team. So she was still doing athletics, but she was learning all these life lessons of resilience that totally helped her win a gold medal. So you're saying that maybe perp- maybe the things that contribute to you becoming a better ski racer are not always just going down the course. I, I think so. And I think mm-hmm. that does come back to this discussion in that, um, you know, the thing that always comes up as what the problem with col- one of the problems with college skiing is that you can't possibly get enough volume. Well, maybe not in the exact way you're used to getting your volume mm-hmm. of training, but you're learning so many other things. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're more free. I mean, and you've got this the value of being around a team. You've got all these sort of other things that we might not consider, you know, actual training, but they're, they're leading to your maturity. And then there's also just the plain physical maturity that's happening as you get older and stronger and you keep yeah, just pursuing exactly. this. Yeah. And I actually heard, um, a small anecdote, Herman Meyer, before he broke out into the world cup and dominated for years, Apparently, he took a year off to just be a bricklayer, make some money, and get strong. Um, oh, yeah. So. Well, he was, the, he was the thick as a brick. That's yeah. the subtitle of Herman Meyer. Um, yeah, but, he did, and he did because he got, you know, he had been really good, really young, and then got, you know, ousted from the Austrian team. And I think that's another thing that um, we don't really understand, that these other national teams that are in Europe, they, they can be bigger because it's not as expensive to be a ski racer in yeah. Europe. Um, but they also just sort of understand it takes longer. So yeah, yeah they might be quick to kick you off, Herman Meyer. But they also, it's it's a true meritocracy. It seems like like if yeah. if you're fast enough, you get back on, and there's less hoops to go through because you can always jump in a Europa Cup. Maybe yeah. maybe you can always jump in a World Cup. It's just not that much of investment to to give it a try. Yeah, yeah. It's it, I think it's a little different in the U.S. But so let's look at you know we're. We're looking at an athlete who's coming out of high school, um, and they, and um, you know, even if they do make the U.S. team, some some of them, you know, are faced with a decision: Do I go to the U.S. team, and the D team is relatively expensive, or do I get a free ride at a state school, a scholarship, um, and just go to college for four years? And that's a tough yeah. decision. And that's that's tough, and even even when you're looking at a school that doesn't give scholarships, mm-hmm. you're saying, okay, I'm I'm going to spend a, close to the same amount of money PGing. I could be spending a little more and also be getting a great education and ski racing. It's a it's it's a tough argument to make. I mean, but yeah. some it, it's just it's really individual. It also depends, I think, on your the home program you whatever PG program you have or whatever. Pro, if you're going to be on the D team, what's your home program that's 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 filling the gaps? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of things to take into consideration. Yeah. Um, and then you know certainly in the school, what are the peers like? Do you have the because you need high level training, and if you don't have that at the school you're looking at, that's going to be tough. Um, and you know the schools need to be able to at this point to have a viable. Um, to be a devi- viable development path for ski racers, you need to be pursuing the Noram circuit too. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of things to consider. Exactly, um, and and there's and I've there's people that have gone both ways. Um, one of my teammates, Jet Seymour, uh, went straight out of out of uh, school to Denver University. He's going to be a senior next year, and he's managed to um, kind of every year, every other year, make criteria so. He's been able to use the resources of the U.S. team um, 
you know, and, and he'll be and he'll be out of school. Whereas, you know, someone like me, I have only done a year of school kind of in patchwork over the past four years since I graduated high school back and forth with the U.S. team. And so I could be much older by the time I graduate college and and. Um, right. So and then on the other side, the, the, the trouble then is that the criteria on the other side of that is very, exactly. very difficult. It doesn't accommodate and age, which yeah. so that it's tough. It's interesting. I was spoke I spoke to um, to a bunch of the Europeans who had, you know, wrestled their way through the NCAA and made it to the World Cup. And I think it was Nordbotten and Trevor Philp and there was one more and they that said, I wish I'd. The only thing I wish I'd gone earlier. Really? Um, yeah. Maybe it was even Neff. Um, but they said I wish I'd just gone at nineteen instead of waiting till twenty one mm. or wherever to start because they just felt like there was so much growth potential on the other side of those four college years. Um, but then again, you've got to have a you know, and then and this is where the national team can help in um, having the criteria reflect that. Like, okay, yeah. this person just chose to go straight. Um, because that's where, that is, if you go, you know, kid that goes straight to, to college is then going to be racing on the Noram circuit and the carnival circuit in the East. Um, and I don't know what they call it. They, you know, they must just call it the NCAA circuit in the mm-hmm. West. I yeah. know they don't call it carnivals. Yeah. It's not um, carnivals. But I West, love that yeah. name. Um, but that's an appropriate, those are, are, are age and development appropriate races at that time. Yeah. Whereas if you delay and then you're going to school, then maybe, you know, your top end is beyond those. Mm-hmm. So, so let's um, let's look at some of the – there's actually – I have a list in front of me of people – I'm not sure I have every name, but of people that have gone out of college and established themselves in the World Cup, then those have, who have scored points. Um, and we've got – you know, what's funny is um, – We've got Tiger Shaw, who's president of U.S. Ski and Snowboard, obviously, who went through Dartmouth as he was racing on the World Cup. Um, and so, what do you what do you think the U.S. Ski team's stance is on going to college? Um, just in a very real sense, um, do you, do they support it? Do they? Yeah. Um, and does yeah. their system support it? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question, and. Um, I, I think they, they support it in theory, and they're making a good faith effort. Like There's working groups to try to figure out how to do this because I think you know, a, lot, a lot of things have played into this. Just to back up a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, Tiger Shaw's, in Tiger's era and in my era, when you went to school, you really were you know, going out to pasture because um, it, it was very tough to do unless you were at a Dartmouth where you can you know, take these terms off mm-hmm. and sort of piece it together. But the co- the college races were not fist races, and that changed started changing in oh, 1995. So you couldn't lower your um, points in college races. No, you couldn't. Okay. So you were just you were doing that, and maybe you were getting this training on the side, but very very difficult. So it really isn't until 95 they started um, doing experimenting with it in the West, and then um, and then the East. I think Dartmouth put on the first uh, fist uni race, and now now all the carnivals are fists. So. It's possible now, where it, it didn't used to used to be at all. Um, it's still been, you know, for it started getting more accepted for the guys. I mean, it really, I think it really started with Warren Warner mm-hmm. Nickerson in two thousand five. Uh-huh. Yeah, came into Colby uh, as one hundred and forty five or one hundred and fifty. He can tell the story better. He'd be a great one to have. Um, came in like one hundred and fifty oh, pounds yeah. and 
70 points, 70 old points, so <laughs> yeah. pretty high, and came out with 10 points and was racing World Cup. And uh, he sort of, he, he did that, and then David Chudunsky, sort of same thing, came in, not not a big recruit for Dartmouth. I think he was maybe barely a recruit, mm-hmm. and progressed through, came out the other side ready to go. But he wasn't embraced you know, this still, it wasn't like it was embraced by the U.S. ski team. It was, he, I mean, he had to really fight to, to get his spot uh-huh. each year. And then, you know, then he established himself. Um, I think just reality is is happening that more kids are, are going to college because and there's so much uncertainty now. Who knows yeah. what, how we're going to emerge from this? I mean, I've heard one rumor there might not even be a World Cup next year. You probably know more than I do on that. But <laughs> with all the uncertainty, I think college a college education is a good thing yeah and definitely. <laughs> people yeah. that are ski you know that are in ski racing they want their kids to be college educated and they're not going to put it off forever so i, I you know the u.s ski team sees that um, yeah and i think trying to it it's just tough it's a, i think it comes down to an ownership thing too i know this has been a big issue of like if someone's with their college team for part of the year and then with the u.s ski team for part of the year and they don't do well whose fault is that um yeah but you know i think mm. we got to get over that and i think people are getting over it there has to be but there has to be complete buy-in that mm-hmm. like we need each other yeah and I, you know they're trying but i you know, I think of, you know do or do not there's a try yeah so you I, just you got to work together yeah my sense is so they the d team um, for the U.S. team used to be a full-time program, and now it is, in the past two years, it has switched over to a part-time thing where they'll give you uh, training in the off-season um, and then maybe training um, like prep camps for NORAMs and maybe a Europe camp in January. But it's it's uh, it's not a full-time program, so you need a home program, which promotes kids being able to go to college and seamlessly do the, the D-team, which I did um, – last season um and, and it seems to work well so it's it seems in that way that they're promoting it i also get the sense that if you ha- if they have a star they're they're not going to college they're they want the kids right. to be full fully bought into the program i don't think you can really blame them for that um no and i and i think you know it, it just used to be so much simpler because everyone was funded and mm-hmm. it, it wasn't as much of a gamble for a kid to just put them just say okay I'm, I'm just doing the u.s ski team because your expenses were covered you were you were making some money it's just a, it's a different really deal now and so i think it's oh yeah i mean it used to be a pretty good living for really wow. people that weren't even the superstars huh. um so that has changed interesting um, and so that's I, the I, other thing about college is that um if we, if we talk about um i think we should talk about the pros and cons of, of ncaa because i think there's a lot of stuff right. there um and that helps in terms of maybe making a decision. But um, the NCAA limits you on making money. And I know most kids are able to get around that. But you can't really get any big contracts, um, any big promotions, um, or like really, you know, people get prize money. Um, but you know, the NCAA limits that. Yeah, and I'm not – and you would know better than me on this because my thought was that sort of in this era – there's no amount of money you could make that wasn't offsetting your expenses. Yeah. You know, if you were still going to school and, and trying to ski race, I may be wrong there. There may be people making it. I think the know. technical rule is, um, it's, you can make, you can make up to the same amount of money that you are paying to travel to races. 
Um, yeah. But not, you can't count like going to a ski academy or, um, you know, PG years in the past or anything like that. Um, right, or, right. Or training camp fees. So, um, but, I, but I think there's a lot of leeway there and I don't think the NCAA is too concerned unless a coach is specifically ratting someone out, which I think has right. happened before. Um, mm. The NCAA is way more concerned about college players making millions, I think, than and then, and that's starting to change too. That's a whole other thing, but that's starting to change as well. Right, right. You're right. That is. There's a lot of things in here. There are other big discussions. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and so the other the, um, another con of of NCAA is that um, you have these limited. There are specific rules in place. You only get a certain amount of uh, practice hours per week, um, and you only get um, you know a certain amount of races that the coach can be at that are considered a team race. Um, and then so basically on the bookends of the season and all of the preseason and postseason prep camps are kind of on your own. Yeah, that that is the really the biggie, the toughest thing to get around. And, um, you know, it's funny there. So the, the U.S. ski team actually has put together last they did it. They did it. Or U.S. ski and snowboard. I, I still get confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, last August and the August before through eastern region and i'm not sure what was done in the western region but they probably did something similar put together these camps but that are basically as long as they're under the umbrella of the national federation and they include kids from multiple schools it's a way for the university the ncaa skiers to get together with peer level training and they were great last year was in um was it stelvio stelvio i think Mm -hmm. and then the year before was sasfe and they're great and actually i think the u.s USSS should have taken, um, gotten a little more mileage out of that and, and promoted it more because it was a really, really helpful thing because mm-hmm. that's what you need. You get these, you know, a lot of these pro colleges work with um, a campus in New Zealand. So on that, before their junior year, kids can take a term down there. Um, that often gives their skiing a big bump coming into the next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dartmouth has that huge, and DU have that huge break from Thanksgiving all the way through New Year's. Yeah. So that's that huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing when looking at schools, like there's pros and cons, even school or no school and within schools, because you got Dartmouth and DU with that big uh, break before New Year's for training. And then you've got Middlebury, Colby, and I'm not sure who else, but have that J term that's off in January. So you get your first three carnival races with no, you know, virtually no classes. Mm-hmm. And that can be really helpful, too. Yeah. But the, the training is hard. Also, the you know you also hear well the you know the if you really want to advance, you have to get some European exposure because there's nothing like the grit you know of Europa Cups and mm. just slogging it out in Europe. And it and that is true. It's a, but that's this is another one of those. This is a big discussion. Um, the, there is whether you need to go to over, Europe. Yeah. Do you get yes. do you get your rankings, your, your six points or whatever, mm-hmm. or fifteen whatever is now in the states, and then go right to the World Cup? Yeah. Or do you? put in your time in Europe and it, it, I think it's somewhere in between. You I'm glad you're talking about exposure. this because <laughs> I am, I'm actually thinking of uh, talking to uh, Nolan Casper about this because he was the last guy to really do the whole Europe thing and he won a, t- a Europa Cup title. That's a whole other story. So I want to get into that maybe next week. Um, but yeah, and it's a good, I think you're, and, and just briefly that when you are talking to Nolan, I'm sure it's, it's really, it's a two year process to do the Europa exactly. Cup because you've got to spend a year building the points, building your rankings so that you can strike the next year. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a huge commitment that understandably, yeah. the, 
it's tough to make. And it's one that the U.S. ski team has to support, I think, in terms of giving you a two-year or three-year commitment and saying this exactly. is what you're going to do. So they, they that's why it, are yeah, responsible in that way. Because otherwise you have to race home and protect yourself by racing enough NORAMs to get your title and your spot, you know, Yeah, whatever. exactly. Um, so let's talk – th- we've been talking a lot about the, um, you know – there's there's so many well not so many but there's several success stories of guys who either were on the U.S. ski team or 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 actually like you know Eric Reed and Trevor Philp the Canadians who came over from Canada and then are now established in the World Cup um, or Jonathan Norbotten the Norwegian who came to UVM and and then had is having a successful World Cup career Tangi Neff like you said from Switzerland went to Dartmouth now having a very successful World Cup career um, and so. We've talked a lot about those World Cup success stories, but I also want to talk about the the majority of college skiers who aren't really maybe planning on going to the World Cup and and um, the sorts of decisions they're facing because you know some kids want to use college or want to use skiing to get into a good school, but then maybe they're on a thirteen kid roster and they'll never start a carnival. Um, right. And right. So that's another. I think that 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 what would hopefully out of as college skiing gets stronger you spread people out you know there's there's a lot a lot of teams i think is it 13 in the east um so there are a lot of teams to spread out on mm-hmm. it doesn't have to just be one or three um and as those can get stronger and, and those rosters balancing out more that i think will bring the level up and then but but a big thing is trying to get more colleges in the west because yeah. there's Four or five? I, I mean, just lost well, New Mexico. Let's see. You've, we, we just lost New Mexico. We've got um, CU, DU, MSU. I think Alaska's still in there. Yep. Um, and Utah, right? Utah. And then is Westminster? Is, right, yeah. Is, are that's they right. D1? West, Westminster's in there. Okay. So so six, but, but you're, that's really not that many compared to the East. Not at all, and for them, it's 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 tougher. A, you know, a lot of those are, are state schools. They're giving scholarships to Europeans, so it's harder to get roster spots. Smaller rosters in general, and then the travel is. You know, you're you're looking at spending a day getting to. You know, if you're going from, you know, up to Montana from Utah or where you know mm-hmm. wherever it's in Alaska, <laughs> the Alaskans. I mean, they're yeah. traveling a long way. It. Um, yeah, it's, a it's lot of tougher to do just and it's more expensive because because of that travel. Whereas in the East, you know, if you're going from the worst case scenario is you're going from slough over to Sugarloaf and, and that's a, a slog. But otherwise, mm-hmm. you're sort of two, it's three, within maybe two, four hours. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so and then the other thing, the other thing, another pro of NCAA is the team atmosphere and just the just the joy of the sport you can't yeah. talk to a kid who's who's raced college who says they don't enjoy it um, every yeah and, and it's and for many i mean because it's ski racing is that quasi that hybrid between being a team and an individual sport mm-hmm. we all come up through a team and a club but you're alone in the starting gate um everyone i've interviewed um and chadunsky just said he said that was the most fun of my entire career and yeah. you know this guy went and to he's raced kids fuel and slodming yeah yeah exactly he said that <laughs> College racing was the most fun. Yeah, um, and that you know that is why we got into it in the first place, and I think that is you know sometimes overlooked how important that is. Yeah, definitely. I you know I I raced college races uh, not this past season but the season before, and 
I experienced the exact same thing. And the team atmosphere is very tangible among every team. There's not a team that doesn't have the women go up and take down the men's coats and vice versa. And, um, and that's just the simplest thing um, about, about it all. And I think, you know, if you, if you talk about, you know, the U.S. team being more welcoming for, for people who come out of college, um, that's one thing to consider is the fact that they, anybody who comes out of college has a different outlook on what it means to be a team member on an individual sport team. That is, no, that is huge. And it does go to, it, it, that builds into the program. And that was, I was talking to Christina Reese Johansson, Norwegian had gone to UVM and she, the year after she graduated, she won the Europe, maybe not, no, she got hurt the year after she graduated, but mm-hmm. then she won the Europa Cup overall that next year. Um, and said that when she really brought that team, that, that was, she was trying not to say that the Norwegian team didn't have it before, uh-huh. but I, she definitely brought that, to, and and it ended up bringing a really good vibe to the Norwegian team that brought a lot of the women up, and that's it's hugely important. Yeah, I I think so too. Um, well, we gotta wrap this up, um, and I because we we tried. There's so much to cover, and and there's so many things <laughs> where you mentioned where I wanted to just go down a rabbit hole. Um, yeah, but. I, my goal for this whole conversation was to kind of sum it up for people and maybe hopefully act as a guide be, for, for kids coming out of high school and for kids coming out of college on, on kind of what to do and urging, hopefully this urges kids coming out of college um, to keep pursuing their dreams if they can. I know uh, a interesting um, evolution and development um, in the past two years was Team X Alpine, which was a, a women's only team. It was, um, you know, two to four members and it was fully funded. So there were two girls that came out of college that were able to, um, it was Forrest Peterson and a Norwegian girl um, who were able to, Benedict, you know, Benedict not, Licht, yeah. Benedict, yeah. And, and, and they were able to not worry about finances coming out of college and just keep pursuing their dreams. Yeah, that was huge. And we didn't even touch on the, the women's side, which is, uh, you know, just a little bit behind where the men are now, mm-hmm. but they're, but it's happening there too, which is cool. Yeah. Um, so, to sum it all up, basically, um, as a kid coming out of high school, you're, you're looking at a couple options. If you, if you qualify for the U S team, um, you know, if it's the D team, you're, you know, you, it's not a full-time program. So maybe you'd consider going to to college and getting started on that because there's so many people that say get started on college early. Um, there's a lot of other people who, um, you know, to me personally have been like, oh, college can wait. You know, you got plenty of time. Your brain will always be there. Your body won't. Um, and so those are kind of your two options. You can look at a PG program and consider and consider that fact if it's a good group and you want to commit to really making a drive um, for maybe just getting into the college you want to get to, getting the recruiting spot you want to get to. And then in college, there's there's the pros of, of the team atmosphere um, and, and the fact that you're kind of in one place for a long time. And there's the cons of, um, you know, uh, trying to find season, uh, off-season training elsewhere, um, maybe not getting the Euro exposure you need. Um, and if you make right. the team halfway through college... What do you do there? So I think I might be making it more complicated for people, but I was just trying to <laughs> trying to well, no, I think sum it all main, up. No, Jimmy, I think you did a great job. And mm-hmm. the main thing I, I would hope that everyone would get out of this is that 
deciding to go to college is not deciding you're going to end ski racing. Yes. Um, at okay. All. The lights should perfectly, be on. Perfectly put. Yes. <laughs> um, and then in a quick plug for USCSA, I think a lot of people don't even consider that. Mm-hmm. But uh, if the prospect of USCSA racing is, I think there's going to be about 5,000 athletes or something in the USCSA. Oh, really? Um, and it's, and it's so that's great. basically keeps... the the D two college circuit. Yeah, and and the, there's a huge range in the kinds of programs there are. Like some are pretty serious, some are not at all. But if it's gonna, it, it's super fun. A lot of kids love doing it, and if that's gonna keep you racing through high school, knowing that you can also do that in college, then then keep that keep that in your mind too, because that mm-hmm. that's always an option as well. And keeping in mind the fact that ski racing becomes more fun in college and that's just kind of totally the it's yeah. the it's the pony yeah. <laughs> it's the pony we didn't get for christmas yeah i hear that all the time from parents and athletes like if the, if i knew this was sort of the worst case scenario if i you know yeah yeah i, I would have been so psyched the whole time this is great exactly well we've got one more question and as a as a loyal listener i'm sure you know what it is eastern mountains or western mountains there's not a quick answer to this, but I'm going to try. All right. You know, I'm a reverse commuter. I'm like one of the very few people that very went from few. the West to the East. Mm-hmm. Um, to be true to my roots and so my kids wouldn't totally haze me, I have to be totally honest. I mean, come on, Western. <laughs> but yep. Yep. that said, that said, I very much appreciate the East, um, especially for teaching kids and getting them into ski racing. The, for proximity of mountains to each other, for community, nobody does it like the East. So mm-hmm. you've got my... Well, it's not a qualified West. It's absolutely West, but with the asterisk. With an, with an honorable mention for the East. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and also, I want to take some time um, because you gave me your time uh, for this show. Is there anything um, you want to kind of plug or, or let people know about to check out? Yeah, just, you know, read racerx.com. And that's racerex.com. Racer EX, yeah, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I've got more time, so it's, there's not much to write about other than hand-making, you know, home-built squat racks, but we'll work on something. <laughs> you sent me a few um, pictures, yeah, that was impressive. Yeah, and yeah. then uh, I've, got a, I've got a cooking blog that's sort of getting, you know, re-establishing itself out of boredom, um, and that's called bringiteats.com. Bringiteats.com. trying to put stuff on there to feed all these mouths that we didn't have to feed for so long that are yeah. now home and super hungry. Devouring everything in sight, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Edie, thank you for um, your time and um, putting together this revolutionary segment, an all-encompassing segment, hopefully which will help some people. Awesome. Thank you, Jimmy, for doing this. You're doing a great job, and I look forward to each Thursday, right? Thursday. Every Thursday, yep. Right on. All right, All right. keep it going. Stay safe. Wash your hands. <laughs> So after I got off the phone with Edie, I got a text from her with a couple things. She said, oh, wait, I wanted to say this, and another text, and then an email the day, a day later. And she has kind of five main bullet points in this email of things that she wanted to make sure were clear or, or things she didn't quite say. So the first one is college skiing is not for everyone. It's tough. And for some people, juggling both skiing and school isn't viable. Um, the second was... The fact that the super for some superstars, for the rare superstars, um, they are ready to just march right onto the World Cup. 
and college would impede that progress. And then there's others in her third uh, point. She says that maybe after one or two years, then they're ready to move on to the World Cup. But a few years of college would be really beneficial. Um, and she says she feels like she hammered on the downsides of Western schools, but obviously they do a great job and have developed World Cup athletes very well. Her point was just that the system would benefit from more schools in the West. And finally, the most important thing, quote unquote, to come out of this conversation should be the athletes and how we best support their development by whatever path makes the most sense. That'll be different for every athlete. There is no one size fits all. So, yeah, I don't have much more to say on that. I think it's all been said. I have a word to say from our sponsor, Sync Performance. If you listen to the show, you know Sync Performance, and you know that it is developed for athletes by athletes, so it's high-quality stuff for everyone. I also want to remind you, you get 20% off when you visit syncperformance.com. That's S-Y-N-C performance.com. And type in the code SRPODCAST20. SRPODCAST20. And our friends at the World Pro Ski Tour, go to worldproskitour.com. The races are no longer happening, but you can check out all the highlights, all the videos, their original series called Life in Between Gates. Whole lot of content to keep you entertained and keep ski racing with you right now. Now, we've got Connor Hogan, the U.S. para-alpine skier. He has a great story. I want to apologize for the sound quality. I was on the phone as well. I wasn't with my microphone, so it's not that great. But I included it nevertheless because he has a great story, and I want you to hear it. Without further ado, Connor Hogan. Well, we are officially recording. And I want to thank you for, uh, you know, calling into the show. Um, I'm glad you're on it on ski racing this week. So, yeah, thanks for calling in. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a great opportunity. I'm excited to share some stories. You know, I, I, I think everybody's a little sad right now. So if I can share some funny and good stories for everybody to have a good laugh and be better, yeah. feel a little better about themselves, uh, I think it'll be good. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I remember racing against you, uh, J4 States back in the day in Vermont, uh, at Stratton. Um, so when did you switch over to, um, just para races? So I, you know, I always was doing a little bit of able body, a little bit of para. So, Mm -hmm. um, and so when I was younger, especially I would use able body races to kind of keep my, my racing, um, mentality up, keeping that focus. And, and I, so it's, it's kind of become a thing on the team where most of us actually grew up in able body programs and yeah. are now, you know, like you went to school with Thomas Walsh and Thomas, so Thomas yeah, Walsh, exactly. um, yeah. he, he joined the able body circuit later in, or the para circuit later in life. And, you know, there's, there's most of these other guys that I race with, at least in the state side, um, that are on the team, um, mm-hmm. all kind of came up in able body programs and yeah. we, we used a lot of able body racing to keep ourselves focused and found it as a way of being able to be the, you know, 
pushing ourselves against people that were most of the time a lot faster than us. Yeah. That would make us go that much faster so that we went to an able-bodied exactly. race. Apparently, yeah. we were that much faster. Um, we were, we were on top of, we, you know, we could be at the top of our game. Um, yeah, that, that, that totally makes sense. So do you mind if, what is your, your disability exactly? Do you mind if so, we discuss that? Yeah, no, that's a perfectly good thing to discuss because it's, that's another kind of difference between us and the able-bodied guys is so, um, so I'm, I have cerebral palsy with right hemiparesis. So which that means is the right side of my body is weaker than the left side of my body. And okay. so mine actually came from a stroke um, in utero. So I had a stroke before I was born, mm-hmm. which weakened the right side of my body. And so everybody in pararacing, everybody's disability is different. So, you know, you know, I talked about Thomas Walsh. So Thomas Walsh is missing part of his hip from yeah. cancer. Yeah, and, I actually had a call with him the other day, and I'm hoping to have him on the podcast too. Yeah, so he, him, and so he and me have different factors, but we race against each other. So all the standing guys race against all the standing guys, and then yeah. all the VIs race against all the VIs, and then all the guys that have spinal cord injuries or, or in a monoski kind of race against each other. So, yeah. and the way they make it fair is they give us all a factor, and so we go in to meet with. Um, a group of doctors whose main job is to figure out where we are placed inside these groups. And it must, works much like a handicap in golf. So we, mm-hmm. so if I take a, you know, I don't want to get too technical because it's, it's lots of big numbers and lots of, lots of confusion that I don't even understand. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like calculating but, points. But, but basically they put a percentage, you know, you a percentage and and that affects your time, right? Yeah. So you get a factored so time. So the best way to explain it is if it's a 100-second course in GS, I'll get 82 uh, – the, the time written on the board would be 82 seconds for somebody like me. Okay. That's the best way to explain it. And so how do they figure out your factor? How do they put a number on that? That that seems kind of tough and that almost unfair sometimes. It, it definitely can ha- – it definitely has its moments of, you know, you know, you can definitely feel sometimes like this isn't fair, but, you know, I think – in general, we all we all work together to make sure it's as fair as possible, and you know, mm-hmm. um, we and you know those those guys, you know, they all have PhDs in statistics and do math on okay. on, on top oh. of their heads. So this is this is their job. I mean, they, yeah, they so, just they're, they so, they just crunch numbers about this stuff. Yeah. So ITC actually gotcha. an outside consulting firm to do all the work for them. So okay. So they can look at our raw data and figure out all of it, which is it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting, but I I don't understand it at all. So I mean that would I, be it, that would be something to do a deep dive in the podcast and on exactly yeah. how that stuff is figured out. I'd love to have one of those guys on. Yeah, those um, guys are you know even we've we've guys in the United States that are are really great on knowing that stuff and it's it's so you, you'll hear listen to them talk and you'll be like I just sat through a, a three hour physics or three hour Stats lesson as a, as a graduate <laughs> student, I'm, but yeah. Wow. So, it's, so are, it's are you in school right now? I am not actually. I'm currently planning on going back in the spring, and I kind of got moved up. I just finished applying again last night. Um, one of the nice things that we get, and I know I know US ski team kind of had it too, or still has it with Westminster, is through the US Paralympic Committee, we actually get um, to go to Dubai um, free of charge, which is oh, which that's helps. great. 
yeah, which helps big time is, you know, it's online. We can, we can do it as we travel and focus on that kind of stuff and be ready yeah, yeah. for whatever comes our way. And, and it seems like I, I follow you on Instagram and it seems like, um, you know, your Instagram username is Ski the Dream, which which basically says everything. Yeah, you know, it it was it it really was a dream. You know, I I I can still remember the story of me deciding I wanted to go to the Paralympics, and it was uh-huh. one of those things where I actually had met a guy who was a wounded vet, and he had gone to Beijing as a um, as a track and field athlete, mm-hmm. and at the time, NBC really didn't do broadcasts of the games. And so in 2008, they did a wrap-up show, and they did a two-hour show after the Paralympics was over, just kind of showing the highlights of the games. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting in it. We were sitting in Vermont watching it, and I turned to my grandmother and my mom, and I go, I'm going to the Paralympics. And they, they both looked at me like, you're insane. And I go, I'm going to the Paralympics. And they're like... That's, that's awesome. If if that's what you want to do, you can do it. And, you know, 10 years later, I, I got to live that dream and I got to step into the gate in Pyeongchang. And it was probably one of the biggest rushes of my life was, you know, oh, being there sure. and experiencing that whole thing. Wow. You, you got me. I got chills now. <laughs> uh, but so but you did promise us a a uh, a funny story. So what what do you got for us? Anything? Uh, to cheer you know, us up in this Corona time, I, uh, I I think there's there's a lot of them, but I I think uh, I think the one that we can we can all uh, we can all get behind is that we were in, uh, you know I think Thomas and and Andrew were well two of my other teammates will laugh at the story when I tell it because they uh, they were there so we were we were in Tasha in October and we were you know we were training and we had been canceled for five days in a row in it. And the day, and it was it was a Saturday, and the the, and we were trying to figure out watching um, the foot. We were trying to watch the Patriots game on TV, and uh-huh. I we we were sharing a, a wall to our room, and I had fallen asleep probably halfway through the second half, and I wake up to the banging and screaming on my wall because the Patriots had scored so many points. It, it just was one of those those moments <laughs> that I think we won't, you know. We'll, we'll was that share. was that the was that the Super Bowl game they came back from? No, it wasn't. It was uh, it was actually earlier this season. It was in October of this year. Um, oh, it was just okay. a random game that I, I I just laugh at it now because it was just yeah. one of those things where we were watching it German and we actually had no clue what was happening other than what we could see. And uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so I turned it back on. And, you know, we we kind of watched the whole rest of the game yelling back and forth. It probably kept the whole ho- the whole rest of the hotel up, but we didn't care. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's probably one of those good stories that I can share that they'll laugh about too. So that's a fun one. Uh, well, Connor, I really appreciate you calling in, and I'm glad we can get some more publicity and more, you know, just people talking and knowing about um, Para because I think it's really important, and I'm, I'm trying to just get as many facets and, and aspects of ski racing that I can on this podcast. So. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm inspired by by your uh, by your you know your Olympic dream and uh, best of luck in this off season and best of luck in the next season. Yeah, thank you. Same to you. Uh, 
thanks for trying to get, you know, trying to get the other facets of ski racing out there. It's it's one of those things where, you know, we can work as hard as we want, but it will never, you know, yeah. Get unless people start recognizing it, it's going to be very hard to continue to show everyone what it's all about. Exactly. Yeah, and I see how hard you're working at. So, um, yeah. Anyway, thanks for being thanks for being on the call. Thank you. So I guess as a journalist, the whole thing is like, you got to do whatever it takes to get the story. And uh, that time it took me being on the mountain and not by my microphone. So that's how it goes sometimes. Well, that's our show. Remember to check out Ski Racing Media's Facebook page. Um, If you've missed previous episodes, they're all right here. Scroll through them. Subscribe to get a reminder and an automatic download. Tell other people to subscribe. Wait, I think we're getting a call. Hold on a second. Hey, Jimmy, it's Aunt Betty. Um, Aunt Betty, how's it going? What's up? Hey, yeah, well, I I listened to you. Well, I got your number from George. Okay. And, and I, well, I oh, listened to your, to your podcast last week. Uh-huh. And I thought that the guy who, who Danny, I gotta have a word with Danny. Why is that? Tom Brady is not... Oh, sorry, Betty. Gotta let you go. Bye. That was a close one. Well, see you next Thursday. Until then, I'm Jimmy Kripka. This is Ski Racing This Week, Ski Racing Media's official podcast. See you later.